mindfulness mode. You have ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, and in six months, you're going to be dead. Get your affairs in order, he barked at me. Mindful Tribe, today I'm with two people who had their lives changed permanently, irreversibly, in an instant, by devastating events. But the thing is, rather than be destroyed, they use those events as turning points in their lives to move toward greater realities. And they were given second chances. They ended up writing a book together and they're doing interviews together and they're sharing so much wisdom with the world. I'm really excited to have Harriet Tinka and Dr. Alan Laika with us today. So, Dr. Laika, are you in mindfulness mode today? I certainly am. I'm very mindful today. And how about you, Harriet? I definitely am. I already did my yoga and I'm ready to go. That's great. And Harriet used to be a runway model. She's an athlete. She has other things that she does in her life, of course, as well. And I'm excited to talk about those things. And Dr. Alan Laika is a practicing doctor. He's a speaker. He's just finished not too long doing a TEDx talk. So Harriet, I want to talk to you about mindfulness to start off with. What does mindfulness mean to you, Harriet? For me, mindfulness is being still, being quiet, enjoying the moment and just enjoying things in the moment. And for me, because I lead such a very busy life, I'm always running ultra marathons. I'm taking care of this, that and everything else. I need to be in a moment of stillness where I'm quiet and I'm enjoying breathing. I'm listening to the to the quiet sounds. So for me, that's mindfulness. Well, I was surprised when you said the word still, because I thought somebody that does as much running as you do, you know, then it's interesting that you mentioned the word still. And I, I can tell that you value that so much because you're an ultra marathon runner. So Dr. Laika, what does, what does mindfulness mean to you? You know, I think mindfulness to me is being Zen, being in that focus where everything else just leaves you and that one thing becomes all. So it's just basically a very particular state of the mind. It's a, it's a way of being and it's something that is hard to get into. It's, it's a state that I think must be aspired to get into, but it's something that we should all try to be as much as we can. Now, extrinsic stimulation can do that, like shows like this, but at the same time, intrinsic stimulation can do it as well. So it's getting into the right frame of mind to me is what mindfulness is all about. Yes, I would agree with that. So Harriet, tell us about you. Tell us what happened at the end of your, well, actually it wasn't exactly at the end of your career as a model, but it was after you started university. Tell us a little bit about that tragic event. Oh, you bet. So I, I had decided to put my modeling career on hold and just pursue a formal education. So with that in mind, I enrolled at the University of Calgary and I was really, I didn't know anybody. I was three hours away from home and it was a time to really make new friends. So I befriended a friend who Little did I know that his attraction to me would end up being deadly. Anyway, I was your typical 
naive victim of domestic violence. I was young, I was naive. I didn't even know the signs of an abusive relationship. So when I get to know him, he was very abusive to me. He would yell and scream and do things that were so disrespectful, but yet he would apologize. And I thought, oh, things are good. So I would confuse that abuse for love. And he got to a point where he was stalking me and I had advice from the police that I should get a restraining order. So I did that and I thought things were good. So one afternoon, actually one evening, I was walking home from, from university. I had finished a big project and I was ready to go home and rest and be in my mindful moment. So I was in the elevator, really only focusing on my keys, trying to find them so that as soon as I get out, I go into my, into my apartment building. Anyway, in the elevator, there he was. He grabbed me by the, by the neck and he screamed and said, how dare you put this restraining order on me? You're going to pay for this. So he grabbed me, put me in the vehicle and we drove off to an isolated area. As we were driving, of course, he was yelling and screaming, but we saw a telephone booth and this telephone booth, he looked at, and neither one of us had a phone, a cell phone per se. So he, he asked me to go get out of the car and call my parents to say goodbye to them because this would be the last time that they would ever hear from me. And at that point, I was scared, but I said, no, I wasn't going to do it. And he yelled again saying, one more time, Harriet, in the back of my car, I have a rope, I have a knife and gasoline. I am going to wrap your body up with a rope, cut your body in pieces and set you on fire. Now are you going to call your parents and say goodbye to them? I said, no, one more time. And this really aggravated him. He got so angry. So he reached out from the glove compartment, took out a knife and he stabbed me two times on my left leg. And at that point, there was blood gushing everywhere and I blacked out. So I have absolutely no idea how I got from that point of being stabbed to the hospital. So when I woke up, I looked around and my father and the doctor were there. My, the doctor told my father that chances are I would never be able to walk because of the, the incision that had happened to my leg and all the blood I had lost. Or if I did walk again, it would take a long, long time. So there I was, an international model. I'd walked the runways. I was full of confidence. And now I've been stabbed. I was going to be a cripple. So I was depressed. So I started asking, why me? Why me? You know how you go through all those questioning when things happen to you. And I had to start healing. So I had to start going for physiotherapy. So it was that doing the physiotherapy in the waiting room where a little girl wheeled in and the details are really in the book. She wheeled in and she was my turning point basically. I shared my story, she shared her story. And at the end of the day, she told me I need to go out there and use my story to inspire the world, use my trauma as a purpose to make an impact in the world. And life is about connecting the dots. So that was my connecting the dot at that point. It didn't happen right away. I had to go through the healing process. And that to me was my reason for being. I decided to use my story to inspire the world. Right. And obviously, Dr. Laika, you decided to use your story as well to inspire the world. I want to know what your story is. I also want to know how you met Harriet and how you ended up telling your stories together. So I can't wait to hear this. 
I will love to share both of those with you. Well, Bruce, my story began in 2003. I was walking in Disneyland, the happiest place on earth, with my wife and my youngest daughter. It was spring break. It was a beautiful day. And at the end of the day, it was a little hot and sticky. And my wife turned to me and said, what's wrong with you, hon? I was taken aback. I hadn't said anything wrong. I hadn't done anything wrong. I hadn't even thunk anything wrong. So I had no idea what she was talking about. I said, what do you mean, dear? She said, listen to your foot. I said, she's another funny thing to say at the end of the day. But my foot had suddenly developed a foot drop with every step on the pavement. It was slapping against the pavement. Normally, your foot rises. It doesn't do something like that. So I said, I don't know what's wrong. Then she turned to me and said, when we get back, you better get this checked out. Now, when your wife tells you that in a certain tone, in a certain way, you know you better get it checked out. So then became my journey. I started on a quest. I saw every doctor that would imagine, saw thousands of them. And they did CAT scans. They did brain scans. They did scan scans. And do you know what they showed at the end of the day, Bruce? Well, I do because I uh, read your book. (laughs) They showed absolutely nothing. The doctors were perplexed. They thought I had a brain tumor, heaven forbid, or I had maybe a slipped disc, but they couldn't find anything. Yes. So I started to see more doctors and I ended up at the doorway of a world-renowned neurologist. A neurologist is a specialist in the nerves. And I went to see him because he was so famous. And so he looked at all my material and he asked me, he said, Dr. Allen, you better be sitting down when I tell you this. I said, why? I've got a dropped right foot. He said, no, you don't. You have ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. And in six months, you're going to be dead. Get your affairs in order, he barked at me. I was taken aback. I said, are you sure? Is there a way to prove this? He said, of course, on autopsy. Wow. Wow. What a bedside manner he had, I mm-hmm. tell you. Well, that was enough. I went through a lot of phases then. You know, Elizabeth Kugler-Ross, a world-renowned author, went through the phases of death and dying. And she stated that you go through anger, you go through bargaining, you go through depression, you go through denial. Now, I went through all those stages, but I'm also, I can attest to the fact you don't go through these as stages. You go through them all at once. One minute you're anger, the next minute you're depressed, the next minute you're bargaining, the next minute you're going through denial. It's all a storm, a psychological storm you go through. And so I finally sat down with my wife and I said, dear, what do I have? She says, I have no idea, but you're smart, figure it out. Well, there was the challenge. And, you know, back in 2003, there was this real primitive thing that was invented. It was called the Internet. You might have heard about it. It was just starting. It was so primitive back then, you had to dial up from dial-on connections by the telephone. And you could only get on with a language called DOS because there was, computers had no memory. So you had to give commands in such a way. And I had friends, friends that were very knowledgeable in this new technology. So I got on and I looked for every disease that looked like ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, that was not ALS. And I found a doctor in Colorado Springs, Colorado, by the name of David Martz. David had a story very similar to mine. 
except he deteriorated much more rapidly. And then he was almost on his deathbed when doctors from around the world came to say goodbye to David. And a doctor from Texas came up and said to David, you know, there's something wrong with your picture. I don't think you have ALS. He whispered because he could barely speak at that time. What do I have? The doctor from Texas says, I think you have something called chronic Lyme's disease. I think you are bitten by a tick and the tick is mimicking this disease called ALS. And David said, so what do I do? He said, you don't need to do nothing, said the doctor from Texas. Just take the medications. And you know, a miracle happened. Just like Lazarus, David arose from the dead. Within a week, he was back to his normal self. He was dancing. He was happy. Well, that was enough. I knew I had to get in touch with David. So I phoned every hospital in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And sure enough, I caught up with him at the Methodist Hospital. You know, doctors can get in touch with any doctor they want to anytime they call. And we talked. We talked for hours. Now, I said, would you like to see me? He said, of course. Can you come down to see me? He said, I'm treating 2,000 people that are just like us. He said, so really? So when do you want me to come down? He said, immediately. And I said, David, I can't. He said, why? He said, it's our Thanksgiving weekend. My wife's just invited 50 people over. He said, aren't there any planes in Canada? Can't you come down? I said, okay, go to my wife. I explained it to her. And she said, well, of course you must go. This might help you. Go, I can take care of 50 people. That's nothing for me. Okay, so I get on a plane. I get on a plane from Edmonton to Denver. It's a great flight. Two and a half hours, beautiful. Then I get on this puddle jumper plane from Denver to Colorado Springs. And, you know, at the end of the day, the air comes off the desert and causes the plane to drop over and over again. It's like the plane is only 15 minutes long, but it's like the drop of doom over and over and over again. So when I got off that plane, I crawled off. And lo and behold, there was David to meet me on the tarmac. Back then, you could do that. And I talked to him, got off, talked to him, and he said, Dr. Allen, I think history is repeating itself. I think I can treat you and you will get better. So for the next 16 years, I maintained as one of the top cosmetic doctors in the world. But you know, when you go through something like this, Bruce, your life changes. You start to look at things differently. You start to realize that you should do things better. And you either become mean and hard and cruel, or you go down a different pathway, one where you want to give back. And one of the things I did was I sponsored an award at the YWCA called the Women of Distinction Award. And I'm going to tell, let Harriet take it from there. <laughs> well, go ahead, that's Harriet. A, yes. Yeah. So that's um, that was a an event that really recognizes women for what they've done in the community, whether it's from their business or giving back in the community. So for me, I was I was nominated in the category called, called the turning point. So in this category is how I use my life to make an impact in the community. And there was a lot of women under that category that were nominated. So fortunately for me, I was the recipient for that award. So after I received my award, I had an opportunity to meet Dr. Laika and we had a conversation. We met for lunch later on and I believe I bought him lunch. I always like to remind him of that. <laughs> <laughs> and thereafter, we started talking about our stories and he shared his story as, as he did today. And we said, maybe perhaps one day we should write a book. 
And that was about four years ago. And the rest is history. Here we are. We wrote the book and it should be out on June 4th. That's our launch date. Uh, June 5th is a launch date. Right. And your book is called 13 Golden Pearls, The Secrets to Living a Fantastic Life. And I'm quite fascinated that you have these 13 secrets to live a fantastic life. And I think that some of them are are secrets that we do hear from time to time from different people, and some of them not so much. So I'm interested in number six, Dr. Laika. Tell us about this one. Tell me which one, number six. Number six is non-negotiables. Oh, this is one of my favorite. Non-negotiables is an amazing one because, you know, I think in life, you have to define what's what's important to you. You really have to have a placard, guidelines for what you will do and what you won't do. And non-negotiable is one of those things. If you have a list of things that you will not do, then you know what you will do in any situation. And, and, you know, trust and honesty are some of the things that I think are the biggest non-negotiable to me. I think those are some of the hugest ones that go on. And I I think with all that, that non-negotiables are some of the biggest important things that you can do out of life and to define that. And I, I, I think some of the other non-negotiables come about because of the way you live. You know, family to most people is a non-negotiable that you will not get off the pathway of family. And, and family is something that I think we often confuse as something that's less important, that work is more important. And when I was a workaholic as a cosmetic doctor, I worked very hard. And yes, I worked hours and hours. And I still work a lot. But you know, it's less important. Now it's part of the journey. And I'm going to get Harriet to share some of her favorite non-negotiables. So some of my favorite negotiable is definitely integrity. And actually, when I think of non-negotiables, I always remember in high school or in university, actually, when I the instructor would come in and say, these are non-negotiable. If you're writing an essay, it has to be a thousand words. That's non-negotiable. They have to, you, when you, if you do a quote, it has to be cited. You cannot plagiarize. So it's things that are like that, that are non-negotiable. So in life, we have these non-negotiable. For me, I will not negotiate my values, my trust, or my family. Those are not okay. It's basically, where do you draw your line? Where, where can people go up to and not cross that line? So those are all the non-negotiables that I think we all have, and we already live with them, but maybe we do not have that definition as non-negotiables. Right. One of the uh, golden pearls is struggles. Dr. Laika, tell us another struggle that you've had in your life other than fighting your health condition. You know, I think life is full of struggles. And and I'd like to emphasize to people that struggling is a normal part of living. And it's our struggles that make us better. It's not the lack of struggles that make us better. I think it's the hardships that get us through that makes it. You know, I went through a very tough medical training. I went through residency. I went through internship. I went through studentship. In fact, during those times, we used to joke, what's the bad thing of being on call one and two? 
And, and the answer is, well, we'd miss half the interesting cases by being on call one and two. Now, can you picture that? Being awake for 24 hours, working half the next day, then getting a half a day off again and going back and doing it all again and doing that for months and months and months and years and years and years. Now, that made me a world-class doctor. Another thing is when I applied for to become a dermatologist, I wanted to become a dermatologist. You know, it was very hard to get in. I had to apply to thousands of schools to get in. And finally, I was accepted at the University of Minnesota, and I was very glad I did. But, you know, it was the struggle to get there that made it that much more important. It was struggling that made it so important. And I'm going to get Harriet to share a couple of her little struggles along the way. <laughs> oh, definitely. I, I love to do that. Now, for me, my biggest struggle was my self-esteem, my self-worth. That's what I've always struggled struggle with. Being an international model, you would assume that we're often told how beautiful we are. But that definitely was not the case. You were never good enough. You were told you're too fat, you're too this, too that. You were never good enough. So no matter what you'd see on the runway, you see me walking on the runway, looking so beautiful, looking happy with full of confidence. At the end of the day, I had to struggle with my self-esteem. I had to, to talk to myself and tell myself, I am enough. I am good enough. I should not let other people's opinion dictate how I feel. So over the years, I've learned how to deal with self-esteem. And that's part of the thing that I do with young girls and young women, as well as boys and men. I help them overcome that because these struggles are not easy. But if you've experienced it, it's so easy to share it. I love that one of the golden pearls is laughter. That's number 11. Dr. Laika, was, was it you that came up with the laughter idea or you both did? And tell no, us I, about that. You know, every time we get together, I think the biggest thing, you know, Carriott and I wrote this book over coffee and we would say things. And part of this book is a beautiful dialogue between us. Why? Because that's how we wrote the book. It was a natural thing. And, and I'd always kid Harriet that she'd always try to get the last word in. And she still tries to do that now, that girl, that girl, I tell you. <laughs> but it's, it's a thing about it. I think laughter is such a very fundamental part of being. You know, there's nothing that brings our mind and body back into sync better than laughter. In fact, doctors have studied it. Do you know that they've actually studied the world's funniest joke? No, I didn't know that they've studied the world's funniest joke. Uh, there was a, a person by the name of Richard Wiseman, a, a very appropriate name for a person studying humor. And he put all the jokes together in the world and got people to rate them. And he came up with the world's funniest joke. Would you like to hear that? Definitely. Okay. Well, there were two hunters. They were out in the woods. And one of the hunters dropped down. He looked like he was dead. So his buddy shakes him. Buddy, buddy, wake up. He doesn't move. So he gets on his cell phone. I mean, cell phones work everywhere now, right? So he gets on his cell phone. He phones 911. Operator, 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 my buddy's dead. He said, oh, calm down, sir. This happens all the time. He said, first, make sure he's dead. Well, the phone drops down. There's a click of a rifle and a loud bang. Comes back on the phone and says, yes, he's dead. What do I do now? Now, that is a... Terrible joke. I think it should be the world's worst joke as well as the world's best joke. 
But you know, it's what life is all about. It's the preposterous things in life that make us laugh. It's the slipping on the banana peel that makes a person laugh. And if we can laugh at adversity, it makes it non-adverse. It makes it better. It makes it a great place rather than a worse place. And I'll get Harriet to share a little bit about that too. Oh, yes. <laughs> For me, um, I often think it's funny because when I was uh, kidnapped and I was, even before I was kidnapped, I was in the elevator and I was screaming. So one of the things that my stalker did, he took off his socks and he put it in my mouth to silence me. So I often tell my friends that saying, put a sock in it, I've lived it. So I can laugh about it now. But at the time, it wasn't so funny. <laughs> no, I guess not. Yeah. Yeah. I guess not. Uh, Harriet, yeah. what have your children taught you about mindfulness? Oh, they've actually taught me to understand my purpose in life. They've taught me patience. They've taught me to be more vulnerable and also not to blame myself and worry less. So I've learned to worry less with the children because children are so innocent. They see things from a different perspective. So through their eyes, I can live my childhood all over again. And I love that. Yeah, yeah, that's wonderful. Dr. Laika, do you have a story about bullying where mindfulness might have made a difference? I always ask a question like this on my show, and maybe it's pertaining to you or someone that you know. Do you have a story like that? I'm going to defer that one because, you know, Harriet deals with young women and bullying all the time. So I want her to tell us a story that she's told me many times about bullying and how she's been able to turn that around. So I'm going to let my my right heart arm person answer that question. <laughs> okay. Oh, you bet. Now, what I do, I do go to a lot of schools and a lot of schools are often faced with bullying and a lot of name calling. What I'll often do, I will use a toothpaste and I have them take it out and I tell them, okay, put it back in. And they say, oh, I can't do it. So I told them words are powerful. Whatever you say has an impact on what you say to the other person. So a quick story is that one of my students came in and she was very upset and unhappy about what was going on in her life. So I had a conversation with her and I found out she was just being bullied by her little brother. And she was the older sister, but she had low self-esteem because it was happening elsewhere. And most people who bully is because they're being bullied. So the little boy was also being bullied at school. So it was a counter, kind of like a counter reaction. Whatever was happening to the little boy, he felt powerful bullying his sister because he gave him more control. Now I had to have a conversation with her and in return with her parents and the little boy. And I gave him some strategies on how to deal with bullying. And with mindfulness, you have to understand how to deal with the bullying. And I have a system called the WITS program, W-I-T-S. So you can walk away from the situation, which is W-I, you can ignore it. And T, you can talk about it. Because sometimes when you talk to a bully, maybe they don't understand what exactly is going on, or there's a little bit of misunderstanding. And if all the three fail, it's the letter S is seek help. Ask, talk, talk to somebody and ask them to help you. And in this case, she talked to me and I helped her go through that. And with, with your mindfulness, it's really such a sensitive time of your life when you're being bullied because you think that the world's against you. 
But really, if you talk to somebody, it's not that way. All right. I really like that acronym, Harriet. That's excellent. WITS. WITS, yeah. Yeah, that's great. So Dr. Laika, as we move forward in the interview, I want to ask you and Harriet five quick answer questions. So the first one is this. Dr. Laika, who is one person who has influenced mindfulness in your life? You know, there's so many people that have helped me with mindfulness, but I'm going to say, you know, my wife and I have been married for 39 years now, and I think it's my wife that has made me more mindful than anybody else. When I think back to the time that I was walking in Disneyland and she said, what's wrong with you, hun? That was a mindful experience. I did not like the experience. I did not like the journey, but it was a mindful experience that helped me with that. Right. Harriet, how has mindfulness affected your emotions? Well, it has actually helped me have a much better balance of my life. Because when I think about my mindfulness and my emotion, I think about my running. Because when I'm running for almost 24 hours, I'm going through pain. And in your mind, you have to, it's mental toughness. So I have found being silent, being aware of your pain and thoughts has really helped me right. overcome, I mean, control my emotions. Right. Dr. Laika, tell us how breathing is part of your mindfulness practice. You know, it's interesting how breathing is such an important thing that we do not take into account. You know, when I was young, I used to be a very bad asthmatic. I used to have winters when I used to spend them in the hospital because I couldn't breathe, literally couldn't breathe. And this season of the year, I always find most difficult because the pollens are coming out, the popular poplars are coming out, and oh, the poplar fluff is deadly for me. Mm. But you know, if you learn how to breathe properly, learning to use your diaphragm when you're breathing and breathe in big, slow breaths, that really helps. One of the things I also became was an expert swimmer and and swimming teaches you how to breathe properly. Otherwise, you'd be inhaling water at the wrong time. So breathing is a very fundamental part of living and doing it very well helps you to overcome those situations. You know, if you're in a fear situation, if you just breathe properly, that fear goes away instead of listening to that little panic inside of you. So breathing is a very important part of a mindfulness situation. Yes, it is. Harriet, if you could recommend a book related to mindfulness, what would that be? Oh, that's a tough one. <laughs> I would say let's my our book. I'd say the secrets to living a fantastic life. I would actually say a lot of the books that Dr. Wayne Dyer writes to me has helped me really. But Dr. Wayne Dyer is an excellent author when it comes to mindfulness. And that's where I've gotten a lot of my inspiration. And I can find out something zone. I'm trying to think on top of my head. It's a, it's, he's such a great, when it comes to mindfulness, I would say he is one of the gurus of that. And he has taught me so much to detach myself away from the ego and not label myself for what I do and just focus on me and being so mindful and just loving myself unconditionally. Yes. I wonder if the book you're thinking about is Your Erroneous Zones. That's the one. Yes. That's the one. Yeah. yeah exactly. Your Erroneous I remember Zones. remember the zone, but yes. Right. Yeah, definitely the book that I would recommend because you, no matter where you are, 
you meet you exactly where you are so that you can have a really a great mindful life. Could you share an app that can help people with mindfulness? Do you use any apps? I don't actually. And I don't. I usually just Google something and I don't have a particular app that I've downloaded. So what most most of the time when I'm thinking of mindfulness, I'll just Google mindfulness and there'll be a list of things that will come up. Right. That will help me with my mindfulness because right. it's needed, especially when you're running and you have your mind is like, what do I do? Where do I go? But I think an app would be great. Do you have one that you've? Uh, yes, I use Insight Timer. I find it's a really Insight good timer. app. Yeah, it's called Insight Timer. It has a lot of meditations on it. It has nature sounds. It has water sounds. But you can just use it as a timer if you like as well. And I find it's excellent. Great to know. I will add that. I will download that today, actually. Yeah, check it out. It's it's a really yeah. good app. So oh, what excellent. website would we go to to learn more about you, Harriet? So for me, if uh, your audience wants to know more about what I do with the women in the community as well as the men, it's www.empoweredme.ca. So once again, www.empoweredme.ca. Right. And we need to remember the .ca at the end, standing for Canada, of course, empoweredme.ca. And what is Dr. Laika's website, Harriet? It's alanlaika.com, dralanlaika.com. Okay. And Alan is A-L-L-E-N. N. So Dr. Alan, yeah. And then L-Y-C-K-A. Doc. .com. His is .com. Oh, his is .com. Doctor, .com. Okay. DrAlanLaika.com. And do you two both live in the same city? We do, actually. like Probably like 15 minutes away from each other. So you can get together for coffee anytime you want then. We can, yeah. We have in social distancing. Right, of course. <laughs> Especially now. Except for and right uh, now, right. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, well, it's great to get a chance to talk to both of you. And, you know, you've put together these 13 golden pearls in your book. And I think that's so helpful for people to read about your stories and and read about why you think these 13 pearls are so important in life. So I want to thank you so much for being here with us today. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having us. And as well for your listeners, if they want to get an inspiration every day, like an affirmation from the Golden Pearls, they can text this number and I can give it to you. Oh, great. It is a 1-819-717-2515. So once again, 1-819-717-2515. And also, if they want to get the book right now, because it's not on Amazon yet, it's a fantasticlifebook.com. So the fantasticlifebook.com is where they would go to get to get the book. Okay, great. Fantasticlifebook.com. And then it mm-hmm. will be on Amazon in uh, a few weeks. On June 5th. Yeah, you right. bet. Okay. Well, that's exciting. Yeah. Well, thank yeah. you very much for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having us. It's been great. And we I'm just going to challenge your audience to do something that they haven't done yet, to be creative and just be grateful for the little things that they do. And they just remain still every so often because 
that will really help you with your mindfulness. And I've found that has really helped me, especially with all the trauma I had to go through. Wow. Thank you for that advice. Thank you very much. Bye now. Mindful Tribe, I hope you enjoyed today's interview. If you did, please tell your friends about the show. Every person who subscribes and listens helps our show. So in the meantime, take what you heard today and reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode. 